here's the thing, right? We read stories like this, and, uh, and we come to church, and we, we think about Jesus, and sometimes we underestimate how hard it is to really understand who Jesus is and to really understand God. Like, we really do. I, I, and uh, I say that with all great due respect to someone who's professionally religious and been a committed follower of Jesus since I was 15. So, you know, that's, um, you know, that's 20 years now, um, plus some. Uh, and so I've, I get it. And so I, you sort of you gloss over and you go, yeah, yeah, Jesus. Um, but actually, if you stop and think about it, Jesus and God, how do they connect? Was Jesus really God? And does it make a difference? And how do we know God? How do we know if there really is a God? And it's one of the things I find when I talk to people who aren't religious, they, they say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And I'll talk to folk here or in the, in, the, in the workplace, in the marketplace. And most people think Jesus was a good guy, right? They go, yeah, no, he was a really good person. Like, he did a phenomenal job. And I don't find it hard to talk to people about how good Jesus was. But it's really problematic when you go from thinking about Jesus as a good person to then going, well, maybe Jesus actually was God. And what would that be like? So uh, this morning, we're going to think about this question, is Jesus God? And that's actually, in a very real sense, the whole point of the passage we've just read. But before we go there, I wanted to just encourage you that you can find the outline for this talk and notes and quotes and stuff um, here on the church app. So if you go to your church app, we've got an app you can download and you can actually take notes on the app. I'm just encouraging you. We've got a QR code you can scan at the end of the service to get the app. And you'll see here you can fill it in, take notes, click through on the link to the Bible passages that I'm referencing. There's a couple of quotes I'm going to put up. All the quotes are there so you can go home and go, oh, I didn't put the reference for the book in, which I just looked at now and thought, oh, I should for next time. And, uh, and there's the whole sermon right there. So isn't that cool? Just a thought. Okay. Now I'll just have to switch. Where can I get those sneakers? Who is that? 0435. <laughs> Matt. Matt took her. <laughs> oh, just too. Oh, mate. We want to. Re- <laughs> Got to be quick, man. Sorry, sorry. I don't know. Where do you. I, I think from the Nike store, uh, you know. No, they're done. They're sold out, mate. They're sold out. eBay. eBay. Uh, and the price you pay for them will not be tithe deductible. Um, just putting it out there. Uh, is Jesus God? And there is uh, what I want to talk about. And it's not an easy question because there's a bigger question behind it. And the question is this Can we even know God? Is the divine knowable? Uh, is the divine actually an object of knowledge like anything else is? You see, what's happened in our culture is that we've, uh, one way we've answered that is to say religious knowledge is a different kind of knowledge to knowing anything else, right? So um, I can know this microphone by studying it, by reading up on it, by using it. It's an object, there's a givenness to it, and I can get to know it. And the, how do I get to know the microphone? Well, I, I, I have to 
understand it as it is, right? It's a microphone. I can't look at this and go, well, f- for you it's a microphone, but for me it's uh, a piece of bacon, right? Yeah, it doesn't work that way, right? Because how would we test the two claims? We'd say, we've got a claim, uh, what is this thing? How do I get to know this thing? You say it's a microphone, I say it's a piece of bacon. What are we going to do to test that claim? Well, you could try, I could try eating it. Uh, We could examine its properties. We could read the instructions from the manufacturer. What we do to get to know it is uh, submit our preconceptions, what we want to be true. Like, I wouldn't mind if it were a bit of bacon, because I really am very fond of bacon and wouldn't mind some more right now. I only had two eggs and a whole pile of bacon before, but a bit more could never go wrong. So I have this preconception to say, I'm really fond of bacon. I'd love it if that were bacon. You, on the other hand, are an old-fashioned scientific modernist who looks at it and goes, no, that really is um, a microphone. Now, who's right and who's wrong? Well, the nature of reality itself will ultimately determine who's right or wrong as we come to it humbly. So um, that's how we tend to think about the world. So we, we explore the nature of reality as it really is, and we have to humble ourselves and submit our preconceptions to that thing. Of course, when it comes to God, what we've done, and the divine and spiritual things, we've we made in our culture over the last couple of hundred years a twist. And we've said, no, 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 hang on. We can't really know God, so really it doesn't matter what you think about God as long as you believe it sincerely. So we've really said God is not a knowable object or being in the same way that any other knowledge object is. Does that make sense? I'll, I'll show you what this means. I'll, I'll draw a little bit. So what, what we've got really is we've drawn a line between reality and we've got normal objects here that you and I get to know by, you know, we study the object, right? I, I look at the object and I study it and I think about it and I get to know it. Uh, But then above the line there's something else and that's kind of God. But I can't really know God. So I I just, you know, I go there and it bounces back and comes back at me. I can't penetrate this veil. So God's somehow different. So really all we've got left then as people are our own ideas about God and there's no way to resolve whether God really exists and what this God looks like. So we, and so this is how we come up with a view that it doesn't matter what you all believe because we can't really know definitively. Does that make sense? Let's pause. Now, at one level, that's a really good strategy if you want to avoid religious wars, isn't it? So this is part of the cultural drive to this came about as a way of stopping Protestants and Catholics massacring each other in Europe for you know a few hundred years. And, and everyone went, well, that's really bad if you kill each other. How do I know who's got the one true, you know, what's God really like? Well, the person who has the strongest army gets to say what God is really like. That's what was going on in Europe. And so philosophers and academics and the broader community said, well, let's just Let's just avoid religion being a cause for people killing each other. And part of the way we do that is by saying God is actually a different kind of being who is by nature of that difference unknowable. So we're all just left on the level playing field of our own ideas or ignorance or experience. 
Let me pause there and ask for questions of clarification because that was a brief lesson in the philosophy of knowledge. I'm assuming there are no questions. That's great. I'm, that's good. So you're all just slowly falling asleep with all the protein and the fat in your gut as it's being... Yes, okay. Against this, uh, classic philosophy, human experience, and the Bible says that, you know what? As difficult as it is, uh, this line doesn't actually exist. That, you know what? It makes no sense to think... The world is like this, and every, every object in the world is known in the same way, but then there's God who is an object but is fundamentally unknowable. Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would God be unknowable? It would seem quite unlikely, in fact, that God were to be unknowable. Like, why would God make us and then make himself or herself fundamentally unknowable? So uh, the classic answer, the answer that most people have given through all of human history in every culture is that we can know God, even though it's problematic. And the way we get to know God is by submitting our preconceptions and our ideas and our understandings of God to the self-revelation of God. Uh, and that's what we see here. Um, in this text... which I just realized I didn't put in my... Uh, give me a moment. We'll have to change apps and pull up the Bible. In the text that you have in front of you, in a moment, uh, this is what we see, not a lot. You see this story, right? And um, Jesus appears, and we heard the feeding uh, happen, the feeding of the 5,000 plus Labradoodles last week. Thank you, Jono. Um, and in this story, Jesus goes off walking on water. Now, why would Jesus walk on water? Missed the ferry, hadn't topped up his opal cart. Because <laughs> it's cool? Because cool? he could? Yeah, you would if you could. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody else can do it. Yeah. To show them who he is. And what is he showing them? What do you, when you see, so you're a first century Jewish person. You're sitting in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. There's a howling gale all around you. You're battling, and then you see Jesus walking on water. What are you going to conclude when you look at Jesus walking on water? What's the, what's the obvious, what's a conclusion you might draw? He's more than a human. Indeed, what, what conclusion more than a human in what way might you say? He's, in fact, God. So the walking on, so Jesus turns up. And he does this thing that a Jewish person in Jesus' day would have gone, that's, a, that's the thing that God does. That's not a human thing to do. So Psalm 77 uh, tells us that God is the God who walks on water. Let's have a look at it. Um, 
If you're following on on the app, you can just click on Psalm 77. The link's there. If you're not, I'll pull it up here. Um, <laughs> psalm 77, verse 16. Now, now all the disciples would have known this, this psalm, right? They all knew it. Everyone knew all the psalms. That was their hymn book. They grew up singing the psalms, chanting the psalms, saying the psalms. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. God is the God who is completely in control of storms, of water, and he just walks over, and that's it. And, and every Jewish person would have gone, yeah, that's the kind of thing God does. Can you think of another time where you've got a bunch of Jewish people, and you've got a bunch of water, and you've got God doing stuff with water to help Jewish people out? The people of Israel. Parting the Red Sea, fleeing. There, here we go. Thanks, Tom. History lesson. Israel in captivity in Egypt, uh, being you know, pursued and killed in a, a genocidal, under a genocidal pharaoh. God rescues them and leads them out. They come to the Red Sea. They're caught between the Red Sea and the advancing Egyptian army. They're about to get massacred. What does God do? Well, he just goes, parts the Red Sea. They all walk over. Uh, and then as the Egyptian army comes through, he closes the Red Sea again, and they all die. Right? So God is the God who is powerfully able to have absolute control over the sea. Now, you might say, well, that's, that seems a little odd, but, but let's dig a little deeper. What that's actually saying is, uh, and, and you have to understand the Hebrew worldview and actually the human experience, is water and oceans are a, sci- are a terrifying experience. The Israelites were not, they weren't Vikings. They were landlocked people who never really mastered sailing technology. Like the Sea of Galilee was kind of as, as big as they wanted to get. And the waters were seen by this landlocked group of pastoralists as a sign of chaos and, and a scary, terrifying, chaotic reality that where, when you went on the sea, you were in great danger. And uh, so who, who alone is able to not be scared of the sea, not consumed with the chaos, who can just, the most powerful force that the Israelites knew, this chaos of the ocean, uh, God could just walk over, could just calm, could just part. It's God, right? So that's, that's what Jesus is doing. He's actually shaping up in this text to show them that he is God. Here's a quote from a commentator linking these two together, the feeding and the walking. Perhaps Jesus' most miraculous miracle, miraculous demonstrations of his power over nature, other than his own resurrection, were his acts of feeding the multitude and of walking on the Sea of Galilee. These two miracles occur one after the other and both echo the miracles experienced by the Israelites in the Exodus. That's what happened. Exodus, God feeds them. God sorts out the water so they get saved. What happens in Mark's gospel? God feeds them. God sorts out the water so they get saved. Like really cool, hey? Imagine if God did that for you. Imagine if you're going through an incredibly difficult time. You don't get where God is. Life is chaotic. Who knows why? Maybe it's just um, all sorts of stuff going on in your life. And and you, you pray... And God shows up 
visibly in front of you and does something extraordinary, do you think it'd be easy to believe in God then? You see, I think sometimes, I know in my own heart, I think to myself, when I struggle with faith and knowing God, I think, ah, if only God showed up the way he did to the disciples, like that'd be easy to believe then, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Like, just, just show up. Just come and walk on water in front of me this afternoon when you're going on the Manly Ferry and you're going to have a lovely thing and, and the, you know, and you're going out past through the heads and the, the ferry's bobbing up and down. You say, Jesus, just come walk alongside of me and tell me it's all going to be okay. And if only God would do that, then everyone's doubts would be resolved and we'd have no trouble believing. Have you ever thought that? A lot of the time. I have, at least. But it's interesting, isn't it? Um, Look at what happens to um, the disciples. What's their response? They have this extraordinary experience of God. If you get motion sickness, don't look while I scroll up. (laughs) Verse 49 What's their conclusion? They cried out. When they saw him walking on the water, on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. These are guys who'd been living with him, hanging out with him seeing him up close, and they still, didn't, still struggled to believe that he was God. They didn't get it. They just went, you're a ghost. There's a problem. What's the problem, right? What does the writer of Mark's gospel tell us the problem is that with these people? <laughs> they hadn't understood about the loaves, and their hearts were still hardened. So what does that mean? Well, all they'd thought with the loaves was, man, Jesus is some kind of weird miracle worker who's there to kind of feed us and, wow, you beauty. And it's all good while, while you think, God, Jesus is meeting your needs. But now suddenly this weird thing happens and they go, ah, he's a ghost. Why? Because their hearts were hard. What does that mean? Well, if you go right back to the story of the Exodus... Again, here's a little Bible trivia knowledge. When God is rescuing the Israelites from Egypt, which is where all of this is an echo of feeding and water, what is the big problem with the Egyptians? What's the problem with Pharaoh? And what does the Bible say the big problem is with the Egyptians? Hard hearts. So go back and read like Exodus, the story of the Exodus, Exodus 12 to 14. And the big problem with the Egyptians was their hearts were hard. Their hearts were hard. So Moses kept going to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. And the Pharaoh said, yeah, I'll let them go. And then his heart would change and get hard. And he'd say, no. And and his heart was hard. And so the writer of the gospel is saying, the problem with the disciples was, the problem is their hearts are hard. What is that saying? It's saying the Jewish disciples, the followers of Jesus, are in exactly the same problem 
or place spiritually and uh, epistemologically or cognitively as the Egyptians were. So what does that mean? We have hard hearts. We have hard hearts? Well, speak for yourself. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. The problem that what that it says the problem of knowing God is a heart problem before it's a head problem. And the problem of knowing God is a problem that is shared by all of humanity. No one is exempt from it. It's not like there is some special ethnic group, or the other way of putting it is God is not a racist. God doesn't have ethnic favorites who find it easier to believe in God. The Egyptians, who were the genocidal oppressors of God's people, and God's people themselves, have hard hearts and don't get who God really is. So God is no racist. The problem of knowing God, of seeing the divinity of Jesus, is, is a problem of the heart, first and foremost. Okay. We... Don't, the, we don't see who God really is. We don't get to know God as he really is because of the, our own prior commitments, because of what we want to see. I'll put it in the, let me give you an example in the negative, right? Um, if you've ever talked, if you ever talk to somebody, maybe you've had a friend, maybe this was you, but maybe let's, let's say it's a friend, <laughs> where they've, they've met someone, a romantic partner, say in their earlier days, and they just, they tell you how wonderful this partner is and how extraordinary they are, how fantastic they are, and they just keep on going on about this amazing human being they've met. And then maybe one day they organize for you all to go out for a drink together or to go out for dinner and you meet this extraordinary, amazing human being that your good friend has been telling you about, that they're so in love with and they're so wonderful. And you meet them and you go, huh? Huh? What? Are we talking about the same person? You just... You just started dating a narcissistic personality disordered charlatan who's going to take advantage of you and leave you, you know? Have you ever had, like... And, and you try and explain it to the person who's just started dating the other person and they just don't get it. They can't see what their hearts won't let them see. They can't see in the other what their hearts won't let them They so want to be loved. And they still want to be in love. Psychologists, one phrase for this is, one, one element of this is confirmation bias. Our hearts only let us see what our hearts want us to see. And then we filter out every other bit of information and only see this, right? And um, that's what the disciples were doing. They couldn't see who Jesus, they couldn't see Jesus as God because, why? And let's make it personal and we'll pick up Jim's point. Why? Why do you think it is hard, even today, for human beings like you and me to see Jesus as God? Why is that hard? Yeah, yeah, so we, we have certain constraints. And what might those constraints be? Like... Um, 
God, sort of the preconception is God. Yep. Yeah. So, so the things that make it hard, let's let's say here, um, why is it hard to know God? And what I what I hear you saying there is really we. Yeah. Yeah, so it's our perceptions. And underneath our perception, what you've described uh, is the philosophical uh, understanding of the world of materialism. And materialism says the only stuff that's real is what you can see, taste, touch, feel, smell, what you can prove by science, what you can know by the scientific method, what's amenable to manipulation by technology. That's, that's all that's real. Yeah, that's a that's a very fixed view of a lot of people, right? Yeah, yeah. What else makes it? And I, I mean, that's um, that's a challenge. I mean, one of the, the arguments to that, an answer to that is, um, well, the most important stuff in our life is spiritual, not material, like love. You can't put love in a test tube. You can't put relationships in a test tube. You can't put feelings in a test tube. You can't put your mind in a test tube. So there, I am. For, for those of you who are philosophically oriented, I am suggesting uh, body-mind dualism, that the mind is separate to just the gray matter of our brains uh, as a spiritual entity. Um, so what else may... So there's an there's a intellectual challenge. What else might be a challenge of the heart to actually concede that Jesus is God? Because that's a big... Like a, so the disciples saw walk on water God. By the way, the whole of the New Testament assumes Jesus is God. And uh, in the notes in the app, uh, there's a little acronym to help you understand what that is about. But um, what else could make it hard to believe and accept that Jesus is God? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, fear of other people's rejection. So you, yeah, I mean, that's... Because it's a crazy idea in our culture, isn't it? Jesus really is God. I think it was, would have been crazy for the disciples as well. Like the one... Like, imagine them, they've been out rowing all night and then they go back to their mates on the shore and they went, man, you would never guess what just happened to us. <laughs> Jesus came walking on the water. Like, who's going to believe that, Right. God showed up. Wow. So uh, in our culture, if you go out to your friends who are all very sophisticated and inner westy and educated and scientific and materialistic, and you say, I think Jesus is God, they might think you're weird, right? They won't think you're weird if you say crystals heal you and, and, and genetically modified organisms are bad for you. And, you know, they'll, they'll think, and, and vaccines cause autism. They'll just think, oh, you know, right, well, that's good, you know. So they, won't think you're not, they won't think you're nuts for thinking any of that stuff, which is crazy and stupid, um, just to put it out there. <laughs> Apologies to all crystal healing, um, anti-vaccinating, anti-scientific vegans in our community. And I just threw the vegan in for fun. <laughs> like it's a package deal. Given that we serve bacon to everyone, I'm seeming we're filtering out the vegans right now. 
Um, yep, I practice mindfulness. Um, I see a psychologist, and uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and I shop at Goop. So there's the problem of evil. Yeah, yeah. So if Jesus, so maybe a way of putting it is, if Jesus really was God wise and he fixed up all the mess in the world, yeah, that's a good one, eh? Yeah, Tom. Good, eh? It's confronting in, in what way, Jen? Yeah, so did you hear that on that side? If Jesus is God and God is God, then that's really confronting because it starts to say, for example, I'm putting words in your mouth, it means I can't, I'm not God. And it means I can't now just decide what God is like. So most of us, I think there's a deep heart issue underneath all the sophisticated philosophy of the unknowability of God. The heart issue is I want to be free to be able to do what I want to do. And to be free to be able to do what I want to do, I have to get, I have to, get rid of a knowable, definable God who limits my freedom. Does that make sense? I, I have to because it's, it's extremely confronting. If God is a given, I, if, if the microphone's a microphone, I can't just make it a bit of bacon. If God has showed up in Jesus, I can't just say, oh, well, no, God is whatever I want God to be. I, can't, I have to then grapple with the, the reality of, of this particular God and the claims that this God makes on my life, uh, which is true of any relationship, right? As soon as I get to know anyone, if I'm really going to get to know you as you are, I have to be open to let you influence me. <laughs> I can't, if, if I don't let you influence me, if I don't change my behavior as I get to know you, I'll never really get to know you, will I? I'll just, I will, will, there'll be no real friendship at all. And that's the problem with God, right? Um, so uh, a, um, a philosopher once said, in, when it comes to reality, we either conform our desires to the truth or the truth to our desires. Uh, and, uh, and actually what he says is uh, modernity, this whole enterprise of making God unknowable, is what he calls rationalized sexual misbehavior. Okay, so modernity. This idea that God is unknowable, this uh, philosopher then does a wonderful job of looking at the last 200 years and going, the whole philosophical drive to say God is unknowable is a way of rationalizing our sexual misbehavior, getting rid of the constraints on our desires. So now I can do whatever I want to do. You can't tell me what I should do. If I want to do this, I should be able to do this. 
as they said in the French Revolution, will only truly be free when uh, the last um, the last the last nobleman is strangled with the guts of the last bishop. Right? When you get rid of all authority, political authority and religious authority, then I'll be free. I can do what I want. So that's the heart problem that you and I have. Which is believing the lie of Satan, which is... Yeah, yeah. And what, what particularly, what can you... Yeah. Yeah, it all goes back to that. Genesis chapter 3, the start of the Christian story, the, the essence of human sin is, the essence of what's gone wrong with our hearts is we say, we want to be able to choose to do whatever we want without God because we want to be in control. And that's the path to happiness, right? Very important. No one, we all want to be happy. This, so don't, and, and it's deep, this drive in our hearts, right? I want to be happy. I want my life to work. And I think if I can keep God at a distance... I can be free to do what I really want to do. And that's why it's really hard then, because the problem with that is when you acknowledge that Jesus is God, you've stopped keeping God at a distance. God's come right up close and personal, hasn't he? He said, here I am, people. Now what are you going to do? Uh, Here I am. And so uh, as Rolf said before, that's why Jesus says you need to be born again. You need a new heart. Like the the biggest problem with getting to know God is, is a change of heart. Uh, and the journey of getting to know God for the disciples um, and for us is surrender. It's just surrender. It's just going, yep, God is Jesus. You're God. I'm not. I'll give up trying to run my own life. I spent three hours during this week um, in a wonderful, rich, deep conversation with a uh, a friend I've known for on and off for 20 years, and they have, um, uh, they're eight years sober after spending all of their young adult years as a very, very, very drunk alcoholic. And um, having grown up in our youth group, and I, I knew them when they were kids, when they're teenagers and then young adults, and, and uh, eight years in the, in the recovery movement in an AA. And we just kept coming back to like the spirituality of the recovery movement. You don't start, you don't grow, you don't change until you surrender, until you admit that you're powerless and you go, I, I, I fundamentally can't do it without my higher power. Now, if AA comes out of a Christian background and, and, we as, and if you're a Christian person, you say the higher power is for sure Jesus. But the journey of, of faith, the journey of discipleship totally starts with that surrender. You go, whatever I might have thought about God, whatever I might have wanted to do with my life, I have to go, no, no, God, is, God has shown up and walked on water. <laughs> he's, he's here in Jesus Christ. He's divine. And, and I need to just surrender. How many of you like surrendering? Oh, we value independence. We value success. We value autonomy. But we talked to someone in recovery in the 12 Steps program. He said, there's a life that only is accessible through surrender. And I think as I was talking with this friend for hours, I just kept seeing all these parallels. And I said, you know, we are all addicts. We are addicted to autonomy. We're addicted to self. We're, we might not be addicted to a chemical substance like alcohol, but we're, we're, our addiction is nevertheless as real. Addiction to self 
And oh my goodness, don't we mess it up? And so like the 12 steps, I think the journey of faith, which it starts with surrender and you... Because you know there's plenty of evidence for the divinity of Jesus, right? Like if you want to believe, there's plenty of evidence. It's quite a reasonable belief system. It's just mostly I don't want to believe because <laughs> I want to be free. But I've got to surrender my addiction to my own personal freedom and say that I will find my perfect freedom and life and joy in following Jesus. Now, um, one of the problem, what, what I love about this passage is um, uh, what's, the, what's the immediate thing that happens after Jesus has shown up and walked on water? He, um, he goes and heals all these people, right? Keeps up with the healing. All these broken outcasts. And why is that important? Because you know what? <laughs> if you've just had a glimpse that Jesus is God and you go all-powerful over chaos, all-powerful creator in charge of everything, you'd better know that he's good as well. <laughs> you'd better know that he loves you, right? Because that's the other reason we, we don't want to follow God is because there's a fear what if, what if there is a God and he's all-powerful but he's not good? That goes a bit to Wendy's thing. Why is there so much evil in the world? And I think this story is constructed deliberately to say all-powerful walks on water, all-compassion, all-healing makes everything right. Okay, so now I can surrender to this God. I can put myself in the hands of this God because I know that he's both the one who's gonna, he's in control, control of the universe, but he also cares about every little broken person, including you and me. That's uh, the story, and it's amazing. And then it goes right on to go, okay, there's an invitation. And the invitation is to surrender and participate in this great adventure, the new exodus. Again, just in the same way that the people of God in the Old Testament, the Israelites, journeyed with God from slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea into the Promised Land. God says to you and me, if we follow Jesus... We can follow him from a slavery to the self, addiction to self, addiction to autonomy, addiction to trying to make our own lives work. Follow him from that slavery through the red, through the, 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 the walking on water and the healing, through the, the God who dies and rises again to sort out all our mess, brings us through the depths of death and destruction and chaos on the other side to the new creation where God will make everything right to a world where we are fully and finally healed of everything that's gone wrong and we're made right. And come on that journey. <laughs> that's the journey we're on. It's full of hope. It starts with surrender. It finishes in glory.